Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Dusty White of Coram Deo Church and Pastor Chris Emmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about replacing sin with trauma. Not going to get any emails about this one. Wow. No, for whatsoever. sure. We are, Not with that title. No, we are stepping back into uh, some some difficult ground in some ways with, with this topic, but I think is one that is good to discuss. Well, uh, that's because John did it in on March 27th, 2023. It's his fault. We're, we're just, just, we're just know, reading responding articles. to an article. Yeah, yeah. So reading this, some articles. The idea for this topic came from an article in the American Reformer. Uh, the, the actual title of the article is The Culture Keeps the Score. Mm. Uh, and this article is written by John Errett, who is a lawyer in Washington, D.C. And essentially what he is doing here is he is sort of bringing critique, um, what, what he would say much needed critique, to some of the categories that have sort of taken over our culture related to trauma, in particular, the way that it has been shaped by uh, the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Yeah. Uh, and so this is a, uh, if you haven't read it, this is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and in particular, his his emphasis is how trauma affects our body and how in many ways we we keep that the record of that trauma in our bodies and how oftentimes we experience trauma and it's not a conscious thing. It's rather, it can come out of us uh, in more of a subconscious way because of, you know, just kind of bodily reactions. And Largely, the the work that he is doing uh, comes out of work that has been done with combat veterans and the experiences of PTSD, and and so a lot of the the application kind of starts from you know that sort of body of research that template, and then trying to draw some broader implications about trauma. And so what John Aird is trying to do is he's saying, hey, there while there are certainly some things in this book that. Uh, we need to acknowledge are real and good and can be helpful that, Hey, we, we may need to hit a timeout, especially in the church, maybe hit a timeout for the ways that we've allowed some of these categories to kind of uncritically filter into the language that we use in particular, how it is kind of crowding out the language of sin. Yeah. And I would, I would just say it is a really helpful book. Yes. Like I, yes. I read it. It's super helpful. Uh, I've, you know, referred to, it's one of those books that's remained on the shelf and that you refer to often. Uh, but I do think, and he even says that, like John even says like, Hey, this is, this book definitely has its place, but it's, it's time for us to talk a little bit about how sin also still exists. Yes. Yes. And his concern is how, you know, we've sort of centered the category of trauma at the expense of, for the church, the, the language of sin. But I think what, I, what I really like about what he's doing here though, is he is, uh, working with both some historical analysis, but also just holding up some of the weaknesses of the book and, and showing, hey, there, there are actually good reasons to question some of, of what Vanderkolk is saying, in particular, some of his definitions. And so kind of just briefly walking through the article, um, what, what he's highlighting here is how the whole framework of the body keeps a score is kind of the, just the, the language. It's the water, the air we breathe, the water we're swimming in, in particular, that trauma is everywhere. You know, trauma informed counseling, trauma informed, um, PR trauma informed, you know, just kind of, you hear this, this term trauma informed kind of applied to, to multiple aspects of, of just development and care and counsel, even discipleship. Uh, it, it has become so ubiquitous in our culture 
that, and, and he's kind of tracing it to uh, the influence of this book. So he kind of starts with that premise. Hey, trauma is the, the language that we just use. Um, that is, you know, that's kind of indisputable fact. But what he wants to do is he wants to point out that one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that when it comes to this issue of mental health, we have to recognize that our understanding both of what it means to have mental wellness and the methods we use to help people get there are culturally bound, mm. that they are connected to certain cultural assumptions that we have, cultural values that we have, and that this has always been the case. And so he does kind of a brief history to show, hey, in the kind of pre-modern, early medieval times, the quote unquote mentally unwell were often seen as visionaries and prophets. And so the solution to that was to kind of give them their own space in society and kind of whatever visions, whatever kind of teachings, whatever kind of ramblings that we would call today, um, <laughs> and, and almost give them sort of a, a religious sort of place to see this is the God speaking through somebody. And so they're different. Yes, there's mysticism here. There's mystery here. You can't take everything that they say. You can't go by everything. But at the same time, there is a value here because they kind of have a heightened consciousness, a kind of heightened experience. And so there was a, there was a place for them. And what do you do with the mentally unwell? Well, you just sort of dis discern and decipher what they're saying. It's not, hey, we have to treat this so much as this is just an experience that some people have, some people don't, and let's use that for a benefit. And then he, he moves forward how um, eventually we developed um, other, other ways of treating mental unwellness. And so there was this idea that um, mental unwellness was the, if, if you cannot function in society, you cannot be a productive member of society, uh, if, if you kind of, you were seen, so if you're morally unwell or mental unwell, you were seen as morally unwell. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with those folks? We sort of just have to remove them from society and say in asylums, put, you know, kind of put them away, get them, remove them from having any sort of uh, negative influence in society causing sort of moral decay. And so that was, again, the shift of how we view the definition of mental wellness and how we deal with that. And then he moves kind of forward into kind of how we do this today. Uh, with with the ways that we view mental wellness and how we treat um, through uh, whether it be psychoanalysis or other, other forms of counseling and care, um, psychiatry, medication, and and in particular, what he wants to um, point out is that if you go by the definition of Vanderkolk, that mental wellness who doesn't have a definition who doesn't actually have a definition, <laughs> but wellness is a, this, this subjective sense of safety, which I think is very, like a very interesting yeah. kind of dynamic where he's, he's getting at the, 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 and you even see this like with the, you know, safe spaces and, and different things. So like, if I'm going to be mentally well, if I'm going to treat mental wellness, I have to have this sense, the strong sense of safety. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of a, a new thing, uh, as far as how we, how we view and treat uh, mental health in our culture. And so ultimately what John Eret wants to argue here is that if you trace the history of how we have both defined mental wellness and treated it, it's not this linear progression of crude and sort of backward thinking to something much more enlightened and more based in science, based in um, proven methods, but rather has been shaped largely by cultural values. And so within any sort of cultural moment, when it comes to this issue of mental wellness and how to treat it, there are things we can both learn, but also things that we need to critique and be careful of. Because again, 
so much of this is culturally bound. And when, when something is that culturally bound, um, you have to have an awareness of how this is not, you know, universally true in that, in that sense. And so he's just calling into question our unexamined assumptions that we have just gone through this linear progression in our treatment of mental health. And we are, we are just so much more enlightened now. And we are kind of above reproach, above questioning, above critique. Uh, but he's saying, no, we're not. And so like any other time, there's places we need to kind of pick this apart. And he's saying, particularly he gets at how the Christian language about the damage wrought by sin is still really important for the church and for Christians to be talking about. So like, even as the culture has gone this way and let trauma kind of define the middle or the center, it's, it's going to be important for Christians to be not just aware of that, but to preserve sin or yes. the word, to, yes. to call sin, sin. Yes. And so where he goes from there to get to, to get to what you're saying, Dusty is again, going back to this, this term safety, like, the, the emphasis on safety as it relates to trauma and the importance of, of that. And so what I found fascinating too is how he points out the definition of trauma, even though, even though the book, The Body Keeps a Score, uses and a, lot of, a lot of the principles that it's trying to teach are grounded in people who have experienced extreme trauma, yes. combat, yeah. veterans who have, have PTSD. So there, there really is this clear definition of trauma. What he does is he moves forward from that into a, a definition of trauma that is so open-ended yeah. that you, you kind of like, well, if this is trauma, then is, if, if, if everything kind of feels like trauma, any, anything that kind of makes me feel unsafe could be qualified as trauma. And, and one of the problems with that is you, you start to lose the definition very quickly. Right. And I, it's very subject-based. So like I get to decide what is safe for me versus what is safe for you now my experiences are different than yours. So that safety is going to look a little bit different, but we're not preserving. And Vanderkolk doesn't really do this. He doesn't really preserve a legitimate definition of trauma. Here's what it is. Here's what it isn't. Yeah. The, the, the quote that he, he brings up is from, from the book is more than anything else, being able to feel safe with other people defines mental health. That definition is clear enough, and this language of safety has today become a fixture of popular discourse. This is John Eric commenting on, on Van der Kolk's definition. Uh, feelings of safety are no doubt important, but the identification of such feelings with mental health as such is quite the philosophical leap. And so then he goes on to show how, he gives this example of uh, the, the Native American Crow Nation, so that their culture, and how one of the most important uh, aspects of their culture of kind of young boys moving into manhood is this test of uh, going into battle and, and getting up close to the enemy. And, and so going through this rite of passage where you actually put yourself into danger and, and how you saying as the Crow nation became with, with the American um, West being settled and the, the United States government more and more in control. And there was less uh, fighting with other uh, tribes, this, this cultural um, expression of moving into manhood was lost more and more and more. And it had devastating effect on overall the, the, the culture. And so what he's pointing out is how actually the loss of risk had the devastating, it created mental unwell, unwellness in this culture. And so he's saying to, to, to create a universal definition of mental health as safety actually doesn't even play out in the real world. And, and so he wants to call into question this whole notion of of safety being paramount, which then calls into question the nature of trauma. And so from there, Dusty, as you were pointing out, if safety 
is not the highest good. And, but, but if the church is sort of adopting that, it creates issues with how we talk about the gospel and we talk about sin. Because sometimes if I have to press somebody, let's say someone is caught in sin or I'm going to call somebody out, it may leave them in a place where that doesn't feel particularly safe in a subjective sense. Sure. So here's what I'm thinking about though, to push back on that. There has to be safety in the relationship at least for you to push. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's, th- this is where, again, I think an appropriate use of these categories versus yeah. just, let's not just throw, let's not, you know, pound the table and go safety. That's just, you know, for, yeah. you know, the cupcakes, you know, like the special <laughs> snowflakes, you know, that, that there, there are insights here, but again, how are we, are, are, you know, sort of kind of on the weight of emphasis and what's being, what, what is kind of given the highest value and the most important piece if safety becomes the highest thing such that I can't challenge even in a, even in a good relationship. Yeah. Um, I can't speak of sin. I can't push people towards risk. If everything is, is about comfort, comfort, safety, safety, then what do we lose when that becomes kind of the, the emphasis? Yeah. And he cites in his article, he cites how some examples of how this emphasis on safety and, and kind of centering trauma has affected the way the church is starting to talk about sin. Yeah. And he even says in there to that, to that point, he just says, if you need to challenge me, then I could decide that that's just traumatic in itself right there. Yes. Yes. And very subjective. So he, he cites an example of an article from Alex Kamir, which I, I've not heard of this, who the Alex, so I'm not sure entirely sure all that Alex believes, but, but this is a, he's citing an article where, where Alex writes, what if instead of looking at sin as the root cause of everything wrong in a person's life, we looked at it as the symptom of a much deeper problem. We cannot treat sin as strictly a spiritual issue or something that we only deal with through salvation or some other religious means. So, so what he's trying to get at is, hey, there's something actually deeper than sin, something bigger than sin. And essentially the, the idea here is that trauma kind of becomes the, the bigger issue. And so I guess what I'm asking here, and I think what's interesting about this article is, Hey, how prevalent is this? And then also what effect is this having on counsel and discipleship? It's interesting. I think in some of the relationships that I have or that I've observed, I feel like people think that trauma maybe makes them more interesting as a person. Mm. And it's easier to talk about my trauma than it is to talk about the ways in which I have sinned against somebody and somebody has sinned against me because that's admitting weakness. Mm. And so in some of the relationships that I have like, you know, had hard conversations with or experienced someone kind of, I think, using like this trauma speak or like Mm -hmm. this therapeutic language. It's, that's always something that I'm just like, is this because they just don't want to do the hard thing and say like, Hey, I sinned against you and I'm sorry. Or is it like, if I say it's trauma or I blame my reaction or my actions on past trauma, like it kind of covers you. You can't call me out for doing something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Kind of puts up a defense yes. before. And I think what's what's good about what you're saying there, Bethany, too, is in the past, if there is trauma, 
nobody's ever been proud of that. And the goal in working with somebody with some traumatic experiences should be health or to use, you know, Vanderkolk's phrase safety. I want to, I want to help you enough so that we get towards safety, not like this is your identity. Right. Or like, this is an excuse for my behavior or yeah. yeah. And I definitely want to say for those of you who have legitimately experienced trauma, we are not downplaying that at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's the, I think the other thing here too, that he highlights I think is important to consider is centering trauma at times can perpetuate sort of the sense of if is as long as I am ongoing that there's this ongoing experience of trauma that 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 becomes sort of my identity and that becomes kind of this thing by which I live. Now again, we're talking about there are times where you know you experience trauma and you can't help that. You carry it in your body. I think this is where the insight is good is you, you you know, PTSD, you're carrying certain things in your body that you just can't control. You're not trying to have these reactions. And so there, I think there's an important distinction here. And again, I think that's why what he's trying to push for is let's distinguish between that real trauma and not, you know, kind of some of these other forms that, that we subjectively call trauma, but actually aren't at the, at the same level, because so often we kind of people, people, at least the culture is encouraging people towards um, not just the defense that you're talking about, but their perpetuation of it to where there's no healing. Right, I think that's right. the thing too of um, how how do we move towards towards mental wellness deeper than just safety yeah. um, to, to actually experience healing. And this is where the gospel offers something where it's, hey, the gospel offers forgiveness, but there's also the offer of wholeness yeah. and, and ultimately wholeness, like when Christ returns and renews all things. And so there, there's a proclamation of the gospel and a hope of the gospel that if we center trauma, if we're not careful about how we are utilizing this category of trauma, we can actually lock people into a hopelessness yeah. because we don't, we don't allow the, the power of the gospel to speak to them and to, and for them to, like we were talking about last week of, of actually exercising agency and growing. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the, the things that we have to be careful that we're not um, uncritically using categories of trauma to keep people from actually experiencing healing. This whole thing reminded me of those categories that we've used for years on sin, wounds, and weakness. And I remember being in the sin camp and, you know, like in my early days of ministry, especially in the reformed camp, right? Chris, you're just like, everything's sinful. And yeah, everything's sin, yeah. <laughs> you need to repent your way out of everything, you know? Repent your way out of this paper bag. So that, w- that never seemed full, and so those categories of wounds and weakness were always really helpful and still are. And we wouldn't ask someone to repent their way out of wounds. But I, but what this article did for me was it kind of centered wounds. And I was wondering, I wonder if I've done that. I wonder if I've like centered people's wounds. Because I do think it's important to realize that some of my wounds do inform my sin or do result yes. in sin. And so because of that, that's all there and true. And so I, but at the same time, I do need to repent and believe the gospel when sin is present. And I think when he says in this article, it's reasonable to conclude that traditional Christian warnings against the ubiquity and horror of sin are unlikely to, to survive a trauma-based reconfiguration. Rather, they will inevitably be downplayed or eliminated in order to grant pride of philosophical place to the trauma paradigm. That was kind of a mic drop. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the... Uh the fear is, is that we lose our ability to talk about 
sin and the horrors of sin. And, and also, again, we, we slowly start to lose agency because if we're not addressing the level of sin in our hearts and we're not addressing, not addressing repentance, then there's no freedom because if right. we're, if we're just walk, continuing to walk in our sin and unbelief, then we're actually not going to experience the power of the gospel to renew our agency in an ongoing way. And, and, and don't hear me say that, you know, on this side of glory that we can perfectly experience healing, especially if we've had deep trauma. Like there's a sense we're always going to carry that. Yeah. But at the same time, we can experience gospel renewal even when we've been deeply traumatized. And I, you know, I raise my hand, like I can testify to that. And yeah. it's still an, oh my goodness, it's still an ongoing thing. Yeah. And the ways that that plays into my marriage and my relationships and different things. But if, if I just kind of throw back and just say, well, I'm a traumatized person and I just sort of, you know, focus on that piece and sort of center my identity and my experience on that rather than the power of the gospel, then I'm losing out on one, the blessings of what Christ has accomplished mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I'm losing out on deep communion, but I'm also losing out on real healing. Like it's, it's just crazy. I think in this life you can experience measures of renewal yeah, and we preach. should want that for people. Yes. Preach that. Dusty, I took a, uh, a pastoral counseling class in seminary. It was after I graduated. This was, it was called advanced pastoral counseling. So I was like, I need, I need a little more. Man, it was advanced. Yeah, I need some more experience. I need some more. My, my one pastoral counseling class in seminary wasn't cutting it. So I wanted to, wanted to learn some more. And one of the categories that, that, um, my professor gave that I still used to this day that I thought was so, so helpful is this category of sinned against sinner. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah. so recognizing both, I have been sinned against and that has Absolutely. affected me, but I am also a sinner and part of maturity. He, he was talking about this move in some ways, movement of, of agency where, you know, I'm a victim to, or I'm a horrible sinner to and you're kind of moving in, in a, a direction of maturity and, and having a good category of sinned against sinner is how we can properly um, integrate this, this reality of, Hey, sometimes we have been wounded. We've been sinned against that has affected us and shaped us, but I also bring sin into the picture. And if I can account for both of those dynamics yep. and, and if I can have a understanding of how those two things overlap appropriately, that that is, that is the path to maturity because I'm going to say, Hey, there are things I need to repent of, but there are also things that I am, I need to heal from. I need to work through that aren't my fault. I'm not morally yes. culpable, but, but are still kind of affecting my, you know, my, my spiritual maturity. And Chris, I think that's the church's job right there. My job as a pastor, my job as a Christian, my job as a brother in Christ is to help you know the difference between what is sin that you need to repent of and what are some like, whoa, man, that sounds like pretty, maybe maybe I even say traumatic. Wow, that sounds pretty traumatic. Or maybe I don't use that word and just say like, wow, that sounds like you, that hurts. That hurts me listening to you. That hurts me. And you're going to need some healing there. And I'm going to need some help discerning which is which perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say what, one of the things that I think that, I mean, I, I, I overall like this article. There's one, one point where he's, he's kind of getting into critique and of, of how some of this trauma language has come into the church and affects the way we talk about sin. And so he um, quotes the, the Dean of humanities and Christian studies at, at Bryan college, which is a, a pretty conservative uh, Christian college. And this guy, Samuel Young's, and he writes, the old ways of construing certain doctrines no longer land in the world. If not reimagined, they may promote harm, irrelevance, or both. 
The Augustinian legacy is mixed, and it can be reasonably linked to diverse instances of theologized trauma. Uh, the harmatology, which is the doctrine of sin, can and should be reima- reimagined afresh in each era of Christian confession. In our own time and place, what might be involved in trauma-informed doctrine of sin? How might harmatology be a help to trauma recovery rather than a Petri dish for trauma's growth? So this is an int- I think he he's onto something interesting here. He's he's using this quote as an example of how the the trauma-based sort of framework is causing people to reinterpret sin, which is dangerous mm-hmm. and problematic. And so I'm I'm with him on, hey, there's some things that this guy is saying that I'm like, I have some I have some concerns here. But what I think this guy is also trying to get at is if we don't have a good category for sinned against sinner. Yeah. Then if everything is my sin, if everything coming out of me is the result of my sin and not accounting for the suffering and the trauma yeah. I have experienced, then we are not going to counsel and disciple well. No. So I think there, there is a place here where we do appropriately need to have good categories of trauma and the effects of the, and, and even if it's not trauma, even if it's just something the way I've been sinned against, if it hasn't, you know, rise to the level of trauma, but I have been affected by other people's sin and, and I have been shaped by certain uh, influences in my life. And that I think the church is doing some good work and growing in those categories. But what, as, as we so often do, is we just kind of go whole hog into the culture and let the culture yeah. kind of start to reshape rather than saying, oh, this is a good consideration. Let's learn from this. Let's supplement. Let's, let's bring that alongside. But let's not allow that to um, cause us to lose our biblical language of sin, of repentance, of, of the power of the gospel. So I, th- this, this paragraph for me was both, okay, I agree with your, what, you're, what you're trying to, to point out, but at the same time, let's not lose, I think, what this guy is trying to get at is like, hey, the church needs to learn some things here. I, I don't like the, you know, what he's saying here of reimagining it afresh or because it doesn't land in our culture, we don't say, you know, that's kind of like, okay, that, <laughs> that's a dangerous road to go down. <laughs> that sounds slippery. Um, but but there, is some, there are some nuggets of truth here. So I think what this article is helpful in pointing out is one, hey, all of our categories for mental wellness and our treatments, they have been influenced by cultural values. And we just need to, to recognize that. And in light of that, we need to be um, critiquing them and evaluating through the lens of scripture, which is God's eternal word. And so as much as there is common grace, truth, and insight, um, the body keeps the score, offers us some good categories. It is not God's word. And we cannot begin to submit God's word to this paradigm. Rather, we need to submit this paradigm to God's word and whatever common grace, insight, and wisdom, um, let, let that have its appropriate, appropriate place submitted to God's word. Uh, and, and in that, um, the category of sin and repentance is something that we must uphold because if we don't, then we leave people in their sin. We leave them without hope. We leave them without the power of change, which is repentance. And so what we want to fight for, we always want to fight for, is what the category scripture gives. Because scripture is going to speak more honestly and more truthfully into any issue. And when we do talk about trauma, we do talk about suffering, which scripture has an incredible category for. Yes. Incredible category for. Um, We are doing so with our, first and foremost, being shaped by God's word and allowing scripture to integrate those categories well. Um, and so let's let's not let the culture keep the score. 
let's not replace sin <laughs> with drama. Rather, let's uphold good biblical categories. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. We pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.